Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Thursday, November 17th, 2011. This is episode 787 of the Survival Podcast, and I am excited because one of my great friends and all-time great guests of the Survival Podcast is here with us again, Mr. Paul Wheaton from Permies.com and RichSoil.com. Today we're going to be talking about using using cast iron cookware, rocket mass heaters, and his compact fluorescent light bulb project that shows that CFLs, well, maybe they're not such a bright idea. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead take care of our housekeeping and take care of our sponsors. Our sponsors do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today. Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy at Directive21.com. Now, what are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Shocking as though it may be, Berkey light water filtration systems and water something that we need to make sure that we have available to us at all times, both good and bad. A Berkey water filtration system will make the water from your tap better to drink today and will make just about any water safe to drink during an emergency. So check out Directive21 and the Berkey guy today. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said a shelf as something you put stuff on versus self like you, yourself, the thing inside your shirt, right? Shelfreliance.com specializes in innovative food storage solutions like the Harvest 72 and smaller systems like the pantry and the cupboard that allow you to keep your canned goods in a completely, totally rotational state at all times, easily keep and track your inventory, and it's just awesome. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. That is some of the best-tasting long-term storage food I've ever eaten, one of the widest selections of long-term storage food that I've ever seen. So check out both the Thrive brand of food and the shelving products at ShelfReliance.com. Remember, the best way to make sure you're dealing with one of our true sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on the banners there to go through and visit our sponsors. That way you know you're dealing with a real sponsor and not some cheap imitator of these Class A companies. Remember, to be a sponsor on this show requires a special listener uh, ad council approval. It's not just about me. It is a strict process. Not everybody gets in, and if people do the wrong thing too many times, sponsors get fired here. This is an exclusive program. I don't say that a lot, but I should remind you guys of it once in a while. If there is something on this show as a sponsor, it is not just a sponsor. It is a personal endorsement by myself. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And the Survival Podcast is now available on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network, available at PrepperPodcast.com. You can link to all of those as well from our website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you will get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files of 24 each. You'll get over $200 worth of free e 
ebooks. You'll get discounts to over 29 supporting vendors on the stuff that you're buying anyway for your walk in prepping and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And you'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And if you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, it gets even better because if you send me details of your service, I will send you a special National Service Recognition discount uh, that will give you a discount on any of our membership terms. And with that, I have everything wrapped up and I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have back with us one of our favorite all-time guests, Mr. Paul Wheaton. Paul, of course, is uh, the force behind permies.com and richsoil.com. He's taught our audience and me a lot of things in his visits here. Today we have him on to talk about cast iron cookware, rocket mass heaters, and his new project involving CFLs. Uh, those are compact fluorescent lights for those not in the know. Paul, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's always fun to be here. Well, cool, man. Um, we got kind of a montage of stuff that we put together to talk about today because that's you. You're the guy that's kind of doing all kinds of stuff. You got your hands into everything. But I know one of the things I've seen your videos on and you're uh, pretty excited about or passionate about, I don't know what the right term is, is cooking with cast iron. And uh, I actually get a lot of questions about that. And I know you wanted to come on and talk a little bit about it, so I have not answered them until you've gotten here. So, I mean, you're all the eco guy, right? You're trying to, you know, do stuff the right way, save the world. Cast iron doesn't sound very eco, but it's actually pretty eco-friendly, isn't it? Well, I, yeah, I, I, I do believe that I'm passionate about, um, you know, eco. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of weird in that space, I suppose. I want to do what I think is right. I want to do what I think is right by my neighbors, and and myself um and then when people come to me and they got a lot of marketing material that says this is what's good and healthy and you should do this and uh and then you look into it and it's like no that was just marketing it's going to totally poison you <laughs> you're going to probably die but we'll still have your money so we're okay with that <laughs> so no, that, that was that's the kind that's of all time, that's an all-time great line no that was just marketing <laughs> I, you know, and, and there, you know, it's like uh, I think another thing to look into is uh, is just general health. I mean, for for us, I mean, it, it's like uh, when we look into a lot of this stuff, and you know, under, under the label of eco, or at least under the label of eco that I go by, that a lot of it is is like, uh, you know, what I want to not go to the hospital because I bought some product and used it, and then well, it led led to hospitalization for myself, which is an expense. And, and it's like, you know, a lot of people don't make that connection between like, um, using your Teflon and hospitalization. So your Teflon pan, while it was only $12 at the store, it ends up costing like $10,000 when you're finally done trying to get past the whatever it is. And you might have some like lifetime breathing issues. Um, so it's kind of like, um, and, and it's like the other thing is there's all this vagary in there. I mean, like some people could stand up and say, you don't know for sure that the Teflon poisoned you, so how can you complain about it? And so I think a lot of the stuff that I put up under my eco flag, and, and while that's a valid point, I agree that that's a valid point. I, it's like I'm going to, I am going to include in there like, you know, well, we don't know that it's not. We do have evidence of like birds actually dying, and we've got tons of evidence of that. And we've got people who had health problems already having their health problems exacerbated by the the Teflon in different scenarios and anyway i've just heard all kinds of stuff about how it's the Teflon is okay but i'm not buying it i i think that it's very problematic and the cast iron stuff turns out to have a very non-stick surface 
when you use it correctly. And I think a lot of the knowledge about how to correctly use it was lost during the Teflon era. I I would agree with that. I think there's also something to be said for longevity of a product. Like even if, let's say the Teflon was okay, and I'm with you, I don't buy it. And I know the Teflon goes in me because if I use a Teflon pan long enough, the coating goes away. Well, there's there's only one place that it can go. It can go into me. Well, once that coating goes away, I have an uncoated pan, and it sucks, and I can't cook with it anymore. And I get angry, and it has an egg stuck to it, and I throw it out at the chickens in the front yard, and then I bury it in a hole in the ground and go buy another one, and now I've used that resource. Conversely, there's one item on the planet Earth that my father and I have an argument over because he doesn't use it, but he doesn't want to let go of it. It is a cast iron uh, griddle. It's kind of like a two-burner rectangular griddle that my great-grandmother brought to the United States from the Ukraine. So it is a family heirloom, and when he's gone, it'll be passed down. I want to cook with it. He leaves it and doesn't cook with it. Um, but that's still here. And if there was Teflon in my great-grandmother's day, which is we're like in the 1890s now, uh, it's st- it w- that pan would not still be here, where, where this pan is. So I think there's something there, too. Well, yeah, I, I'm one of the most popular brands for cast iron, um, at least for the stuff I advocate, because I advocate against the Lodge brand. I advocate for really old pans. Um, and, and it has to do with the fact that they would mill the surface of butt. The old pans were like the Griswolds, and those are from 1890 through about 1950. Um, and so sometimes you go get a Griswold pan, and it might very well be more than 100 years old, and it's still in service. Um, and, and that's the beauty. These things can last hundreds of years with just a little bit of knowledge. So, yes, I'll bet that your grandmother's pan uh, could have been used all this time, and in fact, if it remained in service, it would have probably lasted longer than if it's being tucked away. Yeah, that's my argument with my father. It's not really been used since my grandmother passed away, and that would have been about 93. Um, so it's been basically, and it's, it, it looks nice. The last time I was up there and looked at it, it's, it's got a coating on it. It's, you know, it's seasoned for a million seasons and it's not going anywhere unless it's, you know, unless it gets, it's left outside or something, it will be fine. Uh, when I eventually inherit it, that's not really the way that I want to get my hands on it, though. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's got longevity. I have no idea what the brand is. It's probably made by some dude over in the Ukraine that you know stamped it with a you know a little thing. But it's interesting you don't uh, endorse the Lodge brand. Is there any modern brand that you think's still doing it right, or is it you know you no. really want something pre 1950s? I haven't been able to find anything. One, I mean, I've looked a lot, and the closest thing I found is I, I found something that was a griddle, and it was made out of some sort of steel, uh, um, and and so it was like a sheet steel thing that was bent and shaped, and um, but it's like not the same as cast iron. All the see the thing is, is that the modern cast iron stuff, like the lodge stuff, it has this textured surface on it, which comes from when you go and you you cast the pan. Um, and it's like, okay, there's another one. The, the, the pan is cast. There you go. Stick a, stick some sort of industrial grease on it and, and, and call it seasoning and sell it. Um, and uh, the Griswolds and the Wagner pans that are really old. And, and then there's a bunch of other from, a bunch of others from a long time ago that probably didn't have names on them. I've, I've seen some with no names. They would usually do the exact same thing that the lodge does, only then they would machine out the inside surface to get it to be smooth. And so then um, uh, it's like there's hardly, I mean, 
the bumpage, the, the, the bumpage, the, the, the lumpiness, uh, would be reduced by about a factor of 10. Now, you could take a lodge and use it anyway, and, and with the, the techniques for good cast iron usage, um, and, and you must use a stainless steel spatula with a flat edge. And that's like the most important thing. So if you use that and you put on layers and layers and layers of seasoning, eventually you'll get a good glassy surface on your lodge pan. But on the other hand, if you just, you know, went out and spent the exact same amount of money going out to eBay and, and getting uh, an old pan, you would already have that smooth surface. You'd be set. Yeah, and let's talk about that because sometimes you go to like these things called yard sales and garage sales, and then you see this old pan, and it looks like it's rusted and it's nasty and it's older than hell, and no one's taking care of it in years. But you can actually take that thing and fix it if it's as long as it's not, let's say, too far gone, right? Yeah. I've got a video, oh, an awesome video that I put up like, I don't know, a month or two back. And, um, and so basically the, the woman in the video points out, okay, here's a cast iron pan that's looking a little funky. And it was sitting out next to the dumpster. And so there's this box next to the dumpster with stuff in it. And, um, and this cast iron pan was sitting there. So she, she got it and she looked at the bottom. There's no name on the bottom. And so, um, uh, yeah, there are there are a few different techniques for restarting a pan. And so she's living in the city. She has a self-cleaning oven. So she used the self-cleaning oven technique. So um, uh, she just sends it for a ride to the self-cleaning oven, pulls it out, and all the funk and rust that was on it turned to ash. And then she just rubs it down with oil, and she's good to go. Start the seasoning process over again. Um, I just had a gentleman uh, and his family spend the weekend with me, a guy named Patrick Rohrman uh, from MT Knives. He's the guy that made my mammoth knife for me. And um, he was talking about another way to do it where you take these old skillets, you build up a great big outdoor fire, and you get that thing just till it's a bed of coals, and then you pull back the coals and you stick it in there and you just cover it up with coals and let it sit in there overnight. And when you come back and take it out in the morning, it's just stripped down bare. Yep, you can do exactly that. You have to wait till it's down to coals. Don't put it in before that stage. And, <laughs> Gee, why not? What would and, happen? Crack. Crack, yeah, yeah. So uh, the other thing is you could do that in a wood stove or in a fireplace. Ah, yeah. Yeah, just get it down to coals, put it in your conventional wood stove or, or a fireplace, and, and you'll be fine. Um <clears throat> I've heard of other people trying to do other things, which I found to be, like, not okay. Um, I've heard of people using chemicals, um, and it's like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, like, what other, what other techniques there are, but I think that's it. Um, the, the, uh, the fire, and I've heard of people doing it in a barbecue, too. Like, they have, yeah. a, they have an old barbecue, and they do it. I don't think that would work very well, though, because you don't have enough holes to get around the pan really yeah um <clears throat> but the self-cleaning oven is people using a sander don't use don't do the sander uh you know that's oh i've i've actually did that one time uh with a buying a lodge pan i like i i it took three hours of trying to smooth the surface 
and then my my hands are numb, my ears are numb, and I burned through all kinds of sandpaper. And then it was like uh, two weeks later, the pan cracked. Oh wow! You know, and, and so oh, it's my. like, just just don't mess with that path. You know, I've, the other thing though is a lot of times people, even when they have a good seasoned pan, certain things you cook, you end up with some stuff stuck to the bottom of it, and they just don't. You know, people. I think people don't really know there are some easy ways to make cleanup easier. And like one thing I always do is I always have my cooking beer. My cooking beer is whatever bottle of beer wasn't good enough to drink or was a sacrificial lamb and you know, you screw the top back on it and it's just like cooking wine. And I'll use that whenever I'm cooking something with beer. But if I cook something even it's not going to have beer in it. And I'm just about done with it. I've got a little bit of sticky goo going on in the bottom of my skillet. I use that beer to deglaze the pan and you use maybe an ounce and you use your spatula and, and, and take all that stuff up, which was flavor you'd lost from your food. And then when you go to clean the pan, it's pretty much rinse it out, wipe it out, and it's, it's, it's easy. Where if you leave that crap on there and let your pan cool, yeah, now I'm trying to get that crud off of there. Wow, I've, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. And I mean, like, I've had that article up for like five or six years now, and I've been talking to people, I've talked to probably a thousand people about cast iron. That, that is cool. I like that. Well, you I need mean, to make a video about that. Yeah, just cook something that's going to get kind of sticky. You know, ground beef is like one of the stickiest things, especially if you're doing like I do ground beef with paprika and cumin and chili powder, and then and onions and garlic and shallots, and we use kind of like a taco seasoning meat, and then we'll put that on a, a green salad. And uh, when you cook that between the, the the ground meat and between the chili powder, you get this gook that sticks to your pan. And yeah, you can take it off, and if it's still warm, you can throw it under the soapy water and, 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 and get it off of there. But if you just put an ounce or two of beer in there and just run your spatula, I mean, it comes out almost looking like it did when it went in. And, you know, and what are your thoughts on what do you cook with? Like when you're, you need to add some fat. I'm big on bacon grease, olive oil, coconut oil. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, first thing, the spatula is key. I mean, so I know I already said this, but I need to say it again because I'm going to get – I mean, your listeners, I'll bet you right now half of them are believing me when I say it, and the other half are thinking I'm full of it. And so, (laughs) you know, and and it's like the the people that think that I'm full of it, no, I am right and you are wrong. And and it's like because we've all been trained like, oh, no, you use a plastic spatula. No. Plastic has for the Teflon. That's for the Teflon. We're not doing Teflon here. Yeah. The thing is, is if you've got a good flat edge, and this is hard to find, uh, to have a good flat edge on it, then and then as you use it, it actually helps to shape the seasoning that's occurring. Because every time you cook, you add a layer of seasoning. And stop doing that thing in the oven with the seasoning. For crying out loud, you're just wasting energy. <clears throat> you're just Agreed. adding to your bill. Just Agreed. just start using the pan. You're you're going to add layers of seasoning the more you use it. That's that's all you do. As long as you're not a dumb dumb, and after you've cooked with your pan and you've got that coating start on there, you don't go, oh no, that's dirty. And then you get out your green <laughs> pad and scrub it off. That's that's backwards. <laughs> that's not that's not how we treat cast iron. I've seen people do that. Oh, absolutely. Right, so when, it comes, when it comes to the greases, I think lard is king. And and frankly, folks, I mean, I know, uh, Jack, you've been real keen on that uh, paleo diet. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I'm here to tell you, organic lard may very well be one of the best health foods in the world. Completely agree. 
And, and so, um, and, and on top of that, it is like, it is like magic for cast iron. Um, and, and don't use that Crisco crap. No. The, did you know that Crisco was actually invented to be used as a replacement for candle wax? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I thought you were going to call me some kind of industrial <laughs> lubricant or something because it's yeah. good for that too, but it's, and, uh, I don't eat Crisco. I don't eat margarine, right? And when but my wife likes margarine, and, and like she'll say, "I'm gonna get the butter out," and I'm like, "You're not even allowed to call it butter, okay? <laughs> you, you have to call it what it is. I'll let it be in my house if you want to eat it, but do not call it butter. It's not butter. It doesn't deserve to be called butter." <laughs> yeah, that. Um, so. Crisco came out to be your brand new candle wax replacement. Hey, don't use that stupid candle wax anymore. Use Crisco. And, and then, uh, what happened was is that some, some goofball somewhere invented this electric light bulb thing and suddenly their whole market collapsed. And so it's like, no, we've got this whole factory set up and we're, we've got all this stuff. We've got all this goo. What are we going to do with it all? I know we can cook with it. <laughs> Let's see if we can get people to eat it. <laughs> so wait a minute, wait a minute. Now I'm actually, for the first time in my life, actually considering stalking Crisco <laughs> because I actually now have a use for it. If I oh. had a few things of Crisco put away, which I don't because I believe in lard and, and, and bacon fat and other like natural things we're supposed to eat, but if I had that put away, I could make impromptu candles at a moment's notice. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, and it's cheap. That, that might be an actual valid use for Crisco. <laughs> You're, you are correct, oh, yeah. sir. Yes, all the preppers everywhere are now going to, there's going to be a run on Crisco to use it as a candle wax. No, I'll tell you what happened is all the people were storing Crisco to eat it. They heard you say how bad it was and they were just about to throw it away. And when I said that, they put it back in their press. <laughs> No, seriously. Uh, yeah. So anyway, go on. I know we got we get sidetracked. That's what we do. Um, you and I. Uh, but but it's good stuff. This is stuff that people need to know. I mean, I mean, this is where my life is. We talk about what is eco, and it's like I don't know if it's so much eco as much as it's like I'm just so tired of people telling, trying to tell me that no, you eat this. It's it's okay to eat. <laughs> it's, the USDA said so. Yeah, you know, on that note, uh, and you've heard me talk about this paleo stuff lately, I'm going to send you, Paul, after this interview, a free copy of The Glycation Factor by Greg Ellis, who was on yesterday. And if you want to see things that you should need so that you don't, like, die, why do you read what glycation is? We we won't go there today because um, I've done enough of that this week, but I'll send that to you as a thank you for being on the show so many times. I, I'm going to say in 1996 I did a lot of work in this space and a lot of research in this space because I'm a fat guy. And, and, um, I gotta tell you that the stuff that I thought was the most impressive at that time, and, and the paleo stuff was out then. A lot of people were talking about paleo. But, uh, the work by Lyle McDonald was really good. And, and, and it was, it was really amazing how thorough this guy was. And, and so I know, I know that I, I, uh, <clears throat> was, I, I, I switched the way I ate at a point in time. I, I tried low fat and it just made me really miserable and sick. And then I tried um, uh, something paleo-ish, and um, I lost like 60 pounds in two months. And um, and I never, I, I it took it's it's taken me like uh, 10 or 15 years to gain that back. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I blame the pie. <laughs> it's the never, pie's fault. I have never heard anybody say that before. It's taken me like 15 years to gain that weight back. <laughs> And that pie. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think there's a lot to be said when you, you know, you're bringing up a really good point, not something we plan on talking about, but the whole eco thing. Part of eco is just, I'd like not to die, please, or I'd not, I'd like to not suffer a miserable life until I die, please, you know? And I think that there, you know, that's where a lot of times when I talk to people that are, uh, consider themselves eco, um, they drive me crazy because they'll whine and bitch that I don't want a carbon tax. And I'll be like, okay, well, listen here, ass clown. Last night I took a shower like I do almost every night. And uh, when I went in and turned the water on, I stuck a five-gallon bucket in there until the water got warm. And then I took it out, took my shower, and I took that water out, and I gave it to my plants on my deck so that it wasn't wasted. What the hell did you do? You know, and, 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 and they usually don't have an answer for that. Right? It's usually some other bullshit about, well, the polar bear this, or, you know, no, no, no. What about your backyard, man? And, and then a lot of it is like what you're bringing up, and it's really something I never thought about, but, cause I've always talked about the economic value, right? Cause we're gonna get into your CFL project soon here too, and there's an economic case to be made as well, but there's also, like, part of the eco thing is not just are you poisoning somebody else, but are you poisoning yourself or your family? Yeah. Well, and, and when you're talking about poisoning other people, I, I mean, like a big part of it is, is shouldn't you be respectful to your neighbors? Shouldn't, I mean, I, I want to be, so as I travel this path, it's like I want to be considerate and respectful of my neighbors. And not based upon their terms, because of course everybody else wants me to be their personal bitch, but um, on my terms. Like what what do I think is appropriate? Like I don't think we should be pooping in the in the drinking water. Agreed. You know? That that seems like that would be disrespectful yes. to the whole neighborhood. Yeah, I pooped in your drinking water. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it seems like the thing to do. I mean, that's where eco stuff is to me. That's what I think of as as like, well, what's what's the good and right and decent thing to do? It's about decency. That's yeah. really what it is. But you're right. There's a lot of those people out there where it seems like their whole mission is just to find excuses to be angry. Rather than to actually make a, a lick of difference, and and for the things that I'm involved in, I feel very passionately about. I'm plum tired of telling people to stop being bad. I, I just want to, for myself, do good things, and and so, um, uh, and then it's like I have all these people trying to tell me how to how to do things their way, and and it's like I think that almost all of them are wrong, and and like with the CFL stuff, you start researching this stuff, and it's kind of like. Um, Man, you know, what we've been fed is so different. I mean, I think the CFL thing is one of the biggest greenwashing scams I've ever seen. Oh, it's I completely disgusting. I completely agree. Let's let's get into that here. Um but on what you're saying before we even go there, what I've determined, I, I bet you've determined the same thing, even though we live in remarkably different places geographically. Um and we probably talk to quite different people in their mindsets. I have seen a lot of people that want to tell me what I should do and how I should do it and how what I'm doing is poisoning the planet or killing baby seals or going to resurrect the corpse of Hitler and he's going to kill everybody or something like that. But when I turn around and look at what they're actually doing, they're not actually doing what they're telling me I should do. So, right, I, I think actions speak louder than words. And, and at the same time, <clears throat> I mean, that's even even if you go there, there are some things that some people do that are not going to be within your comfort zone. They're doing something that is indeed perhaps better. On the other hand, it's like outside of my 
comfort zone, outside of your comfort zone. And I think a lot of this stuff is, is like, okay, let's talk about a hundred different things and maybe you'll find six or seven things that are inside of your comfort zone. It's like, yeah, I'll totally do that. One of the things you mentioned was like economics. It's like, <clears throat> how about instead of focusing on what's going to <clears throat> save the world or be respectful to my neighbors, how about just saving myself money? Think about why the Amish never embraced electricity. It's because they went and they looked at where the electricity came from, and it was this big coal-fired plant. And they said, look at all the pollution that's going on there. We can't justify using the electricity and being clean over at our place and knowing that over there you're causing all this pollution and causing all this misery over there. That's like against our values to be a part of that whole package. So we're not we're not going to do any of the electricity thing. We're just going to not use it because it's dirty. And and so I think that that's the root of like when we start talking about you know from an eco perspective, you know, hey, how how can I reduce the amount of uh, electricity that I use? A lot of it is is that you're going to reduce the amount of pollution that's going on somewhere or environmental disaster. I mean, hydro. Everybody's like, oh, I'm using hydro. All my power is coming from that hydro thing over there, and so it's clean. And it's like, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I used to work for the Northwest Power Planning Council. That hydro has got a ton of problems. Not only has it reduced the stock of salmon in our rivers by a factor of 20, so 95% of the salmon that used to be there are now gone, but on top of that, silt is building up behind the dams, and soon the dams won't function anymore. The hydro aspect won't be able to function anymore until they dredge behind the dams and the cost of the dredging is probably going to be so prohibitive that they're just going to have to shut the hydro down. But I bet the good news is that silt is really great stuff. It's not like it's got a lot of pollutants and crap in it or wait a minute. I bet it <laughs> Since has. it mostly comes from runoff in agricultural areas, guess what? You know? So we've got a toxic silt we have to dredge you out of our clean hydroelectric plant. Um, yeah, a lot of – and then, like, see, here's where I get mad at, like, what I call the eco-weenies, right? There was this group of people up in – it was Michigan or Minnesota. They were protesting. They wanted to change the name of the town from Fish Kill to Fish Save because the, <laughs> town, because the town was endorsing the killing of fish. And these retards didn't know that what a fish kill was is like a, like a bypass for the, for the salmon. A fish kill actually saves fish. It's a it's a way the salmon can still get upstream around the dam, and 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 th those are the people that drive me nuts, right? You don't even know what you're upset about, but we can't endorse the killing of fish for their town's name, and you know maybe, but you know what? Maybe they could save the planet if they all did what the president says we're supposed to do, and, and I know you'll agree with this, Paul. We're all supposed to take those ugly round light bulbs out of our house and put those little squirrely ones in there, and that will save the planet. Isn't that the case? <laughs> Oh, man, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <clears throat> now, then right. I've, I've now served you the largest softball in audio journalistic history. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right, you are right. It, it is bizarre. Uh, okay, uh, the, the layers of complexity in this. I mean, how that article I wrote about the CFLs got to be this enormous thing is that, well, and, of course, it started, as with all my articles, somebody on the Internet was wrong. <laughs> so I start typing this thing, and it's like, you know, and I'm typing this response. It's like, 
okay, this isn't going to fit here. So I move it into this this word processor like thing so I can type it up and get it all in there and figure out how to get it in there later. And then I'm still typing and I realize this is way too big. And next thing you know, it's like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to make it into a web page and then link to it. And that's how the article came to be. But this is very multifaceted. And so you're, you know, as you just pointed out the government and it's like, okay, how much, Jack, how much is, how much does one of them squirrely bulbs cost? You go to the store. How much is it? I uh, less than a buck. I think might, I bought I bought four hundred watt bulbs because they're going to ban them. I think yeah. it was like two twenty nine at China Mart. Yeah. Okay. So now, if you if you go like let's say you go and you knock on the door of the company that builds them, and of course all fluorescent bulbs at this time that I'm aware of all come from China. So you go over to the company in China and you've got a pocket full of hundreds or whatever and. And you say, oh, wait, you were asking me how much the CFLs are or how much the incandescents are? CFLs. The CFLs, they're like a couple bucks a piece or something like that. I, okay. Whatever. A couple of bucks a piece at China Mart, right? Correct. Okay, all right. Now, if you go to China and you're at the factory and you're saying, I want to buy 10,000 bulbs or some huge quantity, what do you suppose the price per bulb is there? I don't know. Dime. Okay, I'm going to now rock your world, man. Okay. I predict that when when that light when those when the light bulb arrives on the boat to say Los Angeles or something like that, and it's in one of those big cargo things and it gets through all of the government gobbledygook and it's ready to be shipped off to China Mart. I am going to predict, and this is entirely speculation because the layers of bullshit are so thick and there's so many of them it's it's really hard to figure this out but at this point in time i'm going to make the call i'm going to put my I'm going to, if we're going to have an office pool i'm going to put my i'm going to bet on eleven dollars per bulb that it costs eleven dollars per bulb for all of the gobbledygook that's going on in there and there are like i'm going to I'm, I'm going to now predict i'm going to put you know we're going to have an office pool i'm going to bet on there are seven by the time you go and buy it at at China Mart, <clears throat> that it has been subsidized by seven different government agencies to 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 get to the point where it's only two dollars at China Mart. So basically, what I'm saying is is that uh, nine dollars you paid nine dollars in taxes and stuff to be able <laughs> to have it look like it's two dollars when you go to buy that bulb. I uh, I did not know that. I did not have any idea the level of subsidy that was in that. That just if, if I hated them before, I really hate them now. Oh oh, and I'm just getting warmed up. Okay, next. Do you suppose all the people that play the subsidy game that they do it for free because they just love doing it? Oh no, no. <laughs> okay, I don't do. There's a lot of things I don't do for free, even if I love doing them. I need to pay hey, themselves, right? So okay, so then these people, these people who who play the subsidies game, they uh, they 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 get paid by the day or the hour or a salary to do that, right? So it's like, okay, well, we, you know, my government agency of something or another and my program of something or another is going to give you 87 cents per light bulb. All you got to do is jump through these 40 hoops to get the 87 cents, and then we're going to have a team of 100 people processing all that hoopage and whatnot to be able to, you know, get all the, the I's dotted, the T's crossed, and everything else like that. 
So here's my now. Now we're gonna have another office pool. Like how how much money is actually spent, you know, all together per bulb, so that you can have a two dollar bulb. I'm gonna say it's twenty five dollars per bulb. I I really do think wow. that the amount of stuff that's going on behind the scenes is indeed that significant. Now here in Montana, I get stuff from my power company at least once a month, imploring me to uh, switch all the light bulbs in my house over to uh, uh, fluorescent and the little squirrely bulbs. <laughs> and so they'll um, – uh, mo- and, and, and the latest one said uh, – this is another round that they're doing is like, okay, we'll either give you coupons so you can go get the, 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 the squirrely bulbs for free at your local store or we'll just mail you however many you want. And wow. um, so they end up being free. Let me, let me throw some gas on your fire while you're doing this. A good friend of mine uh, passed away recently, actually. But before that happened, he was at his house one day, and these guys show up, and they look kind of like government-ish, you know? And they said, you know, we're here, we're doing some of the energy or whatever. And he didn't really kind of let them gloss over that because he was like, what the hell are they doing in my house? And they ended up asking the question, what's your household income? So he figured they might be like some kind of tax service or something. So he's like... Uh, a little under $30,000. They're like, oh, well, you qualify for this special program. They came into his house and physically removed all his incandescent bulbs and replaced them with CFLs and then gave him like 20% of the total light bulbs free as reserves and did that for him because he didn't make enough money to buy his own CFLs. Right. And, you know, they were probably Mormons that were doing this because they <laughs> love God so much. <laughs> Because we love God so much and God loves you, we went out and bought you awesome bulbs. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think that's how it works. Nope. I think, I think you and me and everybody else listening here paid for those bulbs. Damn it. Screw it again. So I, you know, I, the thing that bugs me, so like right now, all the light bulbs in my house are incandescent. And I calculate that my current, the amount of electricity that I use per month, on lighting is one dollar per month. So um, when they when they try and they send me this stuff telling me how I'm going to save hundreds of dollars a year by switching over to CFL, I don't quite understand that math. How that's going to work? Well, if you save a hundred percent, it would be twelve bucks, right, a year. Exactly. If it was I mean, if free I... lighting, like if they made a magic light bulb that ran itself from a nuclear powered thing inside <laughs> of itself, it would only save you twelve dollars. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, but but wait, Paul. I mean, after all this tax money goes and all these subsidies, at least the things work better, don't they? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so you got. <laughs> so let's start with the idea of a forty watt incandescent, and then you've got this ten watt fluorescent that says that it puts out just as much light as a forty watt incandescent. So we got a couple of. Uh, we got a couple of hitches in the giddy. Oh, oh, oh. And let's not forget the part where the incandescent says on it 1,000 hours. And, and there's an awesome video out there about the light bulb conspiracy that is just fantastic about, you know, how, how it's, that's planned obsolescence. They can, they can get light bulbs to last 20,000 hours, the incandescent ones, but they figure that they'll make less money if they do that. So, um, but anyway, let's just stick with the, one topic at a time, which is like impossible for me to do. All right. So, so it says 1000 hours, 40 watts on the incandescent. And then you got your fluorescent that says it'll last 
8,000 hours, and it puts out the same amount of light as a 40-watt bulb, but it uses only 10 watts. So uh, a couple of things that aren't mentioned on the packaging. One, if you don't use the light very often, like if you just if you put it in your closet and you turn it on for like 15 seconds and turn it off and then come back later and you turn it on for 45 seconds and then turn it off and stuff like that, the lifespan on the fluorescent bulb will probably be shorter than the incandescent bulb. So it'll probably have a lifespan of about 200 hours, uh, as opposed to the 8,000 that's on the label. So there's there's that. <clears throat> now, granted, if, if you put in a fluorescent bulb in a spot and you turn it on for like, you know, three or four hours at a time, turn it off, you'll get much better longevity. You might even get to the 8,000 hours. But then it kind of starts to depend on a bunch of factors. Some people do get 8,000 hours out of a fluorescent light bulb, but more people get like less lifespan out of a fluorescent than they do out of the incandescent. And it, and it has to do with power quality. And that's my guess is power quality. But I get lots of, re, re, you know, people saying they can never get a fluorescent light to last as long as an incandescent. All right. Now, let's talk about luminosity. Let's talk about the amount of light that comes out of these light bulbs. So the first thing is, is that about a third to a quarter of all fluorescent lights, when you turn them on for the first half a second to a second, they put out zero light whatsoever. So I'm sure that everybody listening has experienced something where they've got a fluorescent light in, they flip the switch, and then it takes half a second to a second until the light comes on. Then, now that's only about, a quarter to a third of the lights. The rest of them will come on instantly. Um, and then the next, the next thing you might notice is that um, when you go in and you turn on the lights, that it's like it doesn't seem very bright in here. That's because it takes most fluorescents about two to three minutes until they reach full luminosity. When they first come on, they're actually only putting out about 30% of the light that they will put out two or three minutes down the road. So they're they're like okay so you're saving it's using four times less power but for the first few seconds it's putting out like three times less light. So like for those first few seconds you're really not seeing much in the way of savings. Um <clears throat> another thing that isn't mentioned on the box is that when the light bulb gets about oh 10% to 15% of the way into its lifespan it's when it gets to full brightness, its full brightness is about 20% less than what it was when it was a brand new bulb. And when it gets towards the end of its lifespan, its luminosity is about 30%, maybe even 35% less than the luminosity that it put out when it was a brand new bulb. So, um, and that's why you experience a lot of people that go out <clears throat> and they'll uh, replace uh, like a, a fluorescent light will burn out. And then they'll replace it <clears throat> with a, a a new bulb that's exactly the same as the one they just took out. Only the new bulb seems to be like way brighter, and it, it has to do with that. Towards the end of its lifespan, the the bulbs put out a lot less light. Now, another tidbit that I don't even mention in my article, but which will be in my video on this, is that um, the light quality. I, I've, I've talked to a guy that's a scientist that, that participated in a study that was done with school children. And when they replaced the fluorescent lights in the school with natural light and incandescent light, 
their IQs went up by 20 points. So CFLs make our children stupider than they already are. Well, I imagine it's not just our children. I imagine. <laughs> I imagine, I'm guessing that they, that, that the studios at Fox News use fluorescent light. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I bet the ones over at CSNBC and MSNBC do too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm just, pick, pick your news source. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, I think that this is one, one area where it's like, oh, geez, the, the, the information pouring in. From all these different directions is amazing, but it's true. If you have a light bulb that you leave on for three or more hours at a go, that, that most of the stuff that's promised to you on the box will indeed come true. You will experience energy savings. So if you have a room, like an office with people working in it, as long as you don't mind dumbing their IQ down by 20 points, you can make a financial case, at least for the consumer end cost, if we take the subsidy side out, for, yeah, this will do what it says it'll do. But right. that's not how most of us use our lighting. You know, I, I generally don't have, I mean, in my office, I have my lights on when I'm working in my office, because that way I can, like, see and stuff. But, like, day to day, like, if I go in the kitchen, I turn a light on, I get a beer out of the refrigerator, I close the refrigerator, and then I do this weird thing. I turn the freaking light out before I go back to the other room. <laughs> See, now, you just stumbled onto what's going to be the, the name of the video. It's, it's, it's turn off the damn lights, which, which is actually a euphemism for what I uttered on your show, uh, months back. <laughs> you can do that here, I just have to put explicit on it and do all that other stuff there. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, oh, I should mention, I, th- your people, so we did those podcasts months ago, and it was like 25 people from your show implored me to start a podcast. And so I now have about 87 podcasts. I've, I've, including, I interviewed you one time. Yeah, you did. And you gotta yeah. have me back on. And you asked, you, you, you said you had, uh, Jeff Lawton on. Jeff Lawton, I, uh, yeah, yeah, the guy, the greening the desert guy. And, and in fact, uh, Bill Mollison is like handing his empire over to Jeff Lawton. At least that's what it seems like is going on. I would agree with that. I'd say it's time. Um, I don't think you've seen the DVD series I keep running my mouth about and promising to send you when I'm done with it. Um, <laughs> but Bill, as great as he is and as brilliant as he is, he's kind of gone over to that place where old men get to where they start to wander all the time, and sometimes they say things that you're just like, really, you didn't edit that out? Uh, and I just think it's a natural progression for all of us, and, you know, God help me, I'll go through it too sometime, but I think Bill's reached that point in his life. Okay. All right, well, um, I, I like to think that you didn't edit that out. I, I like to think I'm in that space today. <laughs> You're gonna be like fooling with this later, thinking no, oh, edit no. That when out. I when I finally get make good on finishing this thing and sending it to you, so you can watch it, you'll understand. Okay, all right. You you uh, so when we didn't do a podcast, you and I were on the phone one time, and you were gonna send me a DVD about that guy in Africa. Yeah, I and never did that either. I I'm never a jerk. Did that. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, Zai farming. Yeah, I'll have to send that to you. Maybe I'll do that this week. So I've got another podcast with Jeff coming out uh, probably today, and because I did two. <clears throat> and well, all right. Well, anyway, I'm doing lots of stuff with with Jeff. He's he's been really cool. And um, 
Uh, and plus he's got that awesome accent, which just makes him sound brilliant. <laughs> On top of the brilliant stuff that he's actually done, actually accomplished. Sure. Like the greening the desert thing. I mean, that's just all right. Well, we're wandering off again. Let's go back uh, to our light bulbs and finish that topic up. So, okay. We got I, one more we want to cover with you before you, you get away today. That's true. That's true. So uh, uh, on, I did a Kickstarter thing uh, because basically I tried to prove a, a lot of this stuff, and and uh, the equipment that I bought turned out to be crap, and and so um, it, it died after two hours. Uh, so the Kickstarter thing, I did that. I got fully funded like within three days or something, and then I um, uh, I bought the gear, and so it's now running right now. And so basically, I've got this bank of lights. Uh, uh, fluorescent lights and incandescent lights and one LED, um, and they're on for 30 seconds, off for two minutes. I predict that when we get about three weeks into this, that the um, fluorescents are going to die. And then when we get about four, five weeks into it, then the incandescents are going to die. And the LED, after five weeks, the LED will be the sole survivor. Um, that's my prediction. Um, and we'll we'll see we'll see how it goes. Um, so I got that going. What, what I like about that, Paul, is that you're actually putting a scientific method to this, and you're testing it. Now, in the article about you, you're like, well, yeah, I'm biased, and I think I know how this is going to turn out. But unlike all those other jerks that run scientific experiments, I'll admit it. And if it, if I'm wrong, I'll I'll admit that too. Uh, oh. So I love that you're actually testing out the hypothesis and stating right from the beginning. Of course, I'm biased. I know this stuff's crap. Um, because this is what everybody does, right? But then they all like, oh, I'm being impartial. No, you're not. If you, if you didn't think you knew something, you wouldn't bother to experiment in the first place. So, uh, actually there's, there's two different articles. So you're right. I'm glad you brought that up. I, uh, this last Sunday, I was on the front page of my local newspaper, you know, with, with a light bulb. <laughs> I think that's and, uh, the one I put out on Facebook for you with the, you says uh, CFLs are not a bright idea, that article. Yeah, 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 and and so that's all about local guy, you know, because it's in Missoula. It's the it's in the uh, the local paper's card called the Missoulian, and so I'm on the I'm on the front page of the paper. Woohoo! Awesome. And uh, uh, talking about that, but no, I I wrote an article out at Rich Soil. Uh, I think it was like a year ago, two years ago, where it's just like here's a compilation of all my information about CFLs and all my positions about the subsidies and the, the lack of light, the uh, the shortened lifespan issue, um, stuff like that. I mean, I, I think that the case I'm trying to make, well, and, and with any, with almost any kind of subsidy, I can imagine that there can be cases for subsidizing certain things, but. But like, um, well, if they like really do work better, and you're using the subsidy to get them off the ground, and then they can float on their own in the market once that's done, um, as libertarian as I am, I can at least accept that. Okay, well, it works, and now everybody's better off because we did this, and maybe in this one instance we should have. I just haven't really found a place where that actually ever worked, and in this case, I just. I, it doesn't work. It, this is yeah. this is so much worse than I've ever seen. I'm almost because I, I almost afraid you're going to hurt my heart when I ask this question. Um, my belief has always been that CFLs were just a sucky technology. But my hope, my dreams for the future, were the LED, right. and they're expensive. Are they being subsidized to this level and still that expensive, or are they kind of making it on their own? Because that that would hurt my heart to know that my twelve dollar LED bulb is carrying forty dollars worth of subsidies or some crap like that with it. All right. I'm going to, have to say I don't know, <clears throat> um, uh, and 
And then, of course, the quality of the light's getting better, but you know, there's still a lot of electronics that are going on inside of that bulb. Absolutely. And, and so I'm, I have a lot of concerns about the LEDs still. Uh, but I, I do also believe that there's a time and place for LED, uh, in our homes. But, but frankly, you know, I, I think, cause the average American spends $10 per month on electricity for lighting. That's, that's the average. Now, if I'm spending one, that means that somebody somewhere is spending 20. Sure. Or so, 19. Uh, and, uh, um, and I imagine there are some households where they're spending, you know, a hundred dollars a month on, on lighting. But, um, I, I really kind of think that, um, uh, even the fluorescent can have a place, but, but, you know, with the ban on incandescent, so, so there, as of January 1st, uh, I believe 100 watt and 75 watt standard bulbs will be banned in the United States. They're already banned in a bunch of other countries. I've got mine and they're not getting them. <laughs> I went out yeah. and bought a bunch of them. And, oh. and I kind of think the reason why that they ban it, and this was part of the thing when I was working at the Northwest Power Planning Council that they were doing a lot of, it's like, wow, you know, power needs are on the rise and so we're going to have to build another power plant. Is it going to be nuclear? Is it going to be coal? What is it going to be? Um, and it's like, you know what? If we can convince people to use less power, then we don't have to build another power plant. And so that was a big part of their strategy was to try and teach people conservation. And um, so that's that's their reasoning. That's their justification for banning this light bulb that uses more power. But we're talking about 7%. Seven percent of all the power that's used, and it's kind of like you know, wait a minute, it's seven seven percent. And then on top of that, um, when you go to the store right now, half the shelves are incandescent and half of them are fluorescent. And it's like the reason why half of the shelf is still incandescent after all this time is because the fluorescent lights suck. They're just that bad. People still hate them. I mean. It, it's covered with information. Oh, it's going to last eight times longer, and it uses four times less power and all this stuff. But it's like, you know, people people will still not buy it. Well, and the thing is, people will buy it when they're told that, and everybody tells them that, and they're told that's the way that it is. But when they do it, and they buy it, and they stick it in, and the money doesn't show up, and the damn thing fails before it's supposed to, they don't go buy it again. And, and that's... That's the key here. You can lie to somebody about something like a light bulb, and you can even do it convincingly, but eventually when they stick it in their house, since they live there, they're going to like figure the truth out. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's just so frustrating. Oh, well, anyway, so it's kind of like, okay, they're going to ban the light bulb. Um, they're not going to ban the Hummer. You know, I, I, I just kind of think... Adding more laws is just the wrong way to go about it. If the, if the light bulb is so good, if that and well, and the other thing is like, well, once once the incandescents are banned, maybe they're going to withdraw the subsidies for the fluorescent, and suddenly we're going to have our choice between a an eleven dollar fluorescent and a a twenty two dollar LED light, and that's all you get. That's all you get to pick from. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there are there are some other choices with halogens. There are um, some other bulb style bulbs. That are, are going to still be available, um, but <clears throat> this market is a mess. And, and how much effort they're putting into banning this and making more laws—it's—it's kind of like you know, 
uh, the next thing is, is here's, here's a thought. I think that for the amount of, uh, material that is sent along with my power bill every year, <laughs> they, they could have a thing in there talking about how awesome a clothesline is. Yeah. A, a clothesline. Yeah. Yeah. Would save far more power in a year than, um, a bucket full of light bulbs. Let me so, let me give you another idea. This is this is how crazy this is. I think that all those inserts they stick in there and send to you, those cost money and resources. If even if they printed them up the way they did and spent all the money to print them, there would be a better return of investment if we made a machine where they took all of it and instead of mailing it out to customers, they burned it and turned it into steam and turned a generator with it. They could generate <laughs> more power burning the inserts then they will save with the impact of the interest. I'm not saying, I'm not stupid, right? I'm not saying they should do that, but I'm saying that from a, from a mathematical standpoint and energy standpoint, it probably works out that way. That they could, you know, for every one person that does what the little thing says, and then you're telling me it doesn't work anyway, so I know I win. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think the thing is, is that there is a case where CFLs can work, where CFLs can technically save you money, but, then you're gonna you're gonna have a variety of other problems that come with it. I I've met people, more than one person, that that travels a lot, and one of the things that they keep in their suitcase is an incandescent light bulb. And when they get to their hotel room, the first thing they do is they unscrew the fluorescent that's there and they screw in their incandescent bulb. And and it's because they they are so convinced that it's problematic. I know of people with epilepsy. That when they come into a room where there are fluorescent lights, that they have to turn their back on the light and they have to actually leave the room. I can't be in this room, you know, like like because they could feel it. They feel that it's going to set off a seizure. Wow! You know? And and it's like, but no. Then they they come around uh, to the uh, incandescent lights and then they don't have that problem. And then there's that weird thing about EMF or something like that. I, I got the meter, but I haven't fired it up yet. But I've been told that if you go and you take this meter and you go around and you hold it up to different contraptions, some contraptions make, you know, it goes wild like, oh, poison, this is poisoning you. <laughs> and, and, and then you go up to your floor, your, your incandescent lights and it's like, nope, totally safe, man. You're okay. And, and so it's like, but apparently for the fluorescence, it sends this thing off the scale. Wow. Uh, I haven't fired it up. So yet. you're saying there could be unintended consequences of government action? Gee, I've never even fathomed. Yeah. But here's my thing. This is why I think this is all a scam, and maybe we could use it as a segue into the one more subject we want to hit today. Um, you said 7%, and I think for some people it's 7%, some it's a little higher, some it's a little lower. It's okay. good national average. It's what everybody uses. That's how much of your power, your energy goes toward lighting, which means 93% doesn't. And, like, one of the biggest things that we actually spend money on, and it seems like if we're going to put all this subsidy and all this effort and all this freaking greenwashing marketing and everything on it, maybe it would make more sense to focus on some place that people actually use a lot of energy or a more, more, a larger portion of their energy. And to me, that's heat, specifically heating your home, uh, and cooling your home as well, and heating water. Those three things are what's sucking it up. And last year, you ran a little experiment, and it might be outside of most people's comfort zone, but you did this to prove it can be done, and you cut your electric or your your heat portion of your electric bill by eighty seven percent. How'd you do that? <laughs> well, it was it was after years of experimenting, but um, uh, <clears throat> basically, 
uh, it boiled down to I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. When I'm in, when I'm in my home, I spend a lot of time in front of the computer and I spend a lot of time in my bed. And, um, and granted, there's other stuff too, but, but, but dominantly, those are the two places where I spend my time. So, uh, what I did was, is that I lowered the thermostat in the house to 50. And, and just by lowering the thermostat in the house down to 50, that probably eliminates about 95% of my heating bill right there. Um, and, and I'm in Montana, so it gets pretty cold here. And so for those really cold days, then, you know, the, the heater's having to work. But when it's only, but you know, most of our winter, I think a lot of people in California probably don't realize this, but most of our winter, uh, during the day, it, it, it usually hits 50. You know, so, uh, and we got sun pouring in the windows. We have a lot of, so then you have solar days. gain at that point. Oh yeah. A lot of really sunny days, um, uh, in the winter here in Montana. Um, so, uh, uh, basically it, it, it gets warmer. All, you know, we, we stay, my, my place is, you know, moderately well insulated. And so, um, <clears throat> I, I believe turning it down to 50, I'm going to save about 95% right there. Um, but at 50 degrees, when the inside of the house is at 50 degrees, that's that's too cold for me, way too cold for me. In fact, I have discovered that when I'm bundled up, that at 65 degrees, that's too cold for me. My fingers get numb. I can't type. I can't do my work. And um, so uh, what I ended up with is I uh, came up with a bunch of things because because most people, when they heat their homes, they use convective heat. This is heating the air. And and this is the least efficient way to heat people, by far. The next most efficient way is radiant heat. This is like what the sun does. You, there's a hot thing over there, and when you're facing it, your front side is warm and your back side is cold. And then if you face away from it, your back side is warm, but your front side is cold. But... It's, it's radiant heat and it's more efficient than convective heat. And then the most, the most efficient form of heat is conductive heat. This is, this is where you've got something that, uh, is, is warm and it's using hardly any watts at all and you touch it and then it conducts the heat into you. And, uh, and so that's the most efficient. So I, I, what I do is I turn my thermostat down to 50 and then I use about 80 watts of heaters <clears throat> that that heat me instead of heating the whole house. And granted, we can we can do stuff to make it so that it can work for a variety of scenarios outside of desk and bed. Um, so couch scene, the kitchen scene, whatever. We can come up with all kinds of things for all these different scenarios using radiant or conductive heat instead of convective heat. Um, so what I have here, in fact, right now it is. 57 degrees in my house, and I am warm as toast because I have my feet sitting on a dog bed heater that uses 15 watts, and uh, I have a 40-watt incandescent light bulb hovering not too far above my head. I have, and this took, a, this took somebody on Permies pointed this out to me at the forums at Permies, and I bought it, and it worked. Uh, I have a heated keyboard and a heated mouse. All these oh. things together add up to about 82.5 watts. So I use 82.5 watts to keep myself very warm. 
I've, I've sat here at this desk last year during the 87% experiment and I let the temperature, uh, get down to 37 degrees where I'm sitting now and I was still warm as toast. Um, now granted it was at the edge. I was starting to feel cold, but, um, but basically I had my own little sphere of where I worked, where I felt warm and the rest of the house was 37 degrees. Now, I don't think that's a good for most people to do. I was going to just I was, say, I want people to understand you're being a realist. You're not saying this is what everybody else should do, but you're demonstrating what can be done, and then people can utilize that to whatever portion they want. If everybody did a little bit in the heating world, it would make a hell of a bigger difference than even if CFLs did what they said they do. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and and you know what? Hey, let's let's take it another take a look at another great big expense. You know, so like. Um, we use if 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 for the last 10 15 years um it's like okay we want more energy more 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 we're using all this energy so what have we done to make sure that we all have cheap energy how how much did the war in iraq cost and and and, and i mean like is there doubt that, that i was- don't even know i mean 87 billion for the first year Right. I mean, I, I thought I heard something at one point in time like this would like we weren't even done yet. And it's like the total so far was eight hundred billion dollars. I have no doubt. I have no and, doubt that's accurate. And, and so and, <clears throat> I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, wow. And and I think I did the math that like works out to be about four thousand dollars per American. And uh, and it's kind of like that's just that's just brutal. Also, we can have so we paid four thousand dollars. Now, imagine what if everybody did this stuff like they either did this uh, where they reduced their electric heat bill or they got a rocket mass heater installed and they just burned the twigs in their yard in order to heat their house or, or one guy had a rocket mass heater and he just burnt his junk mail. He heated his house all winter on just- See? See, that's what I said. They could generate more power with the insert. Yep. See? <laughs> or, 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 or a wafati. You know, sure. all, all of these kinds, there's all these, so half right now, <clears throat> the average American household for averaging everything everywhere, half of all power used is for heat. And and then if you think about it, uh, and in fact, I've looked it up, two-thirds of American households do not use electricity as their primary heat source. That means that, the, you know, for, for, for those where it is their primary, it might be something like three-quarters or more of their Correct. heat bill. Correct. Is, if, you want to is, see a, if you want to see an electric bill that will stop your heart, Paul, Go up into the northeast on a, a year with a particularly cold winter where a lot of these houses are heated with the baseboard electric heaters where you turn it on. And it, the only good thing I can say about that is at least you have room-by-room room control. So, like, when you go to bed, you can turn them down elsewhere and turn them up in the room you're sleeping in. But those things are so inefficient. The $400 electric bill, you got out easy when, we, when you have, like, a January where the you know it doesn't go above freezing. It's unbelievable how inefficient that electricity is. And, you know, that's why people up there will pay thousands of dollars to put in an oil burner or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of people uh, getting, uh, elect- having, having a, a three-bedroom house, and their, their electric bill is like $600 a month. Absolutely. In the wintertime. Don't, don't like, doubt it for a second. Geez. So, um, uh, you know, and a lot of the stuff that I write about is, is about, okay, because like my, I think in February, which is the month that I went by for cutting 87%, um, and uh I think my electric bill that month was forty bucks. Um and, and I'm in Montana in February. And and I only used electric heat. 
Um, I think that's the important part is that you are you are on electric heat. It's one thing to say I have a forty dollar electric bill and then you have a kerosene heater fired up in the back room. Right. You only used electricity to provide heat in Montana in the winter and had a forty dollar bill. That's showing what can be done. Yeah, and I and I and you know this is this is blazing a trail. So a lot of people look at it and it's like, uh, no, no, this is this won't apply to me because of whatever this. You know, and it's like you know you don't have to do the exact same thing that I did. This is this is saying that it can be done. I went to the top of Mount Everest, therefore other people can do it too. And, and in fact, you don't even have to go to the top of Mount Everest. You can go to the top of some local hill. You know, it's like now that the, the trail's been blazed, now now you've got ideas, you've got materials that you can use. Sure, I mean, and, I mean, I look at what you did, and I think, okay, well. Uh, if I said to my wife, honey, we're going to keep the house at 50 degrees, I'd be like, dude, Paul, you got a place for me to bunk up with you because <laughs> I'm going to get thrown out. But I can't tell you how many times the heat's been kicked on because somebody's feet are cold, right? Oh. So if you in- integrate some of these things, then you can just use a lower setting, and, and that has a big impact, even if you're cutting it down by five degrees. Absolutely, absolutely. And so you know, a lot of households might be able to do 60, and they do some of these things, and they're perfectly comfortable. Um, I mean, there's, there's the other thing is that I mentioned in my article, the one that I wrote, not the one that's from the local paper, um, as I talk about where people are saying, okay, I turn my thermostat down at night, and uh, because my, and then it's like, okay, then I've got heat like for an hour in the morning and like for four hours at night, and so because there's 24 hours in a day, then I'm saving myself like I'm going to cut 80% off of my heat bill. And so the problem with that is, is that you actually end up cutting only like 10% off of your heat bill. Because, um, all night long it'll have been, uh, you know, you, you've turned your heat off so it gradually gets colder and colder and colder and it gets down to maybe 60 or 55 or something like that. And then in the morning you've got it set so it automatically heats the place back up. But now, instead of your heater coming on like every half an hour for like a minute, now your heater has to run for like 15 minutes in the morning to get the heat in the whole house back up. Sure. I mean, I look at it like, you know, when you look at a generator and they have surge watts and continuous wattage. So when you, when your when your device first kicks on, it has that big spike and then it evens out. And it's right. kind of the same effect in a thermal spectrum because you've now got to do all this work to heat up all this space versus maintain, keeping the ball in the air is easier than picking it up off the ground, I guess. Right. Right. So there's uh, this is these are these are tricks and tips and techniques and things you can try and and it's like I see all these people who are stressing out over saving power and it's like okay that's going to save you forty cents a year and on the other hand if you do this you're going to save fifteen hundred dollars a year and and um and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, they start to think about like oh am I willing to give that up am I willing to change my behavior am I willing to do this other thing and it's kind of like well. Are you willing to do it for $1,500? I mean, I kind of think for some people, it might save $3,000. And then you can start talking about this weird idea of like, imagine going to the Bahamas for a week in January for less than $3,000. So Using the $3,000 you save to pay for it and uh, buy yourself a few drinks while you're there. I don't know, something like that. I mean, the the big thing is, is like a lot of people are like, oh, I could never go to the Bahamas because it's too expensive. And it's like, hey, I've got uh, here here's an idea, you know. Um, but anyway, it's it's like uh, 
I don't know. Some people, I, I think that most people can totally wrap their heads around saving 40 cents a year and they can become passionate and proud of their savings of 40 cents a year. But you start talking about, and here's something where you can save $1,500 a year. And it's like, Oh no, I could never do that. Um, and it's, and it's like, you know what? I'll bet that if you actually tried it, you'll find out that it's easy to do that. I, 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 I think I'm very particular about how I do want to live a very comfortable life. There's a reason why I'm fat. I love pie. I am not giving up pie <laughs> to be thin. And so uh, um, I I feel very comfortable with with my little bubble of warmth. And uh, and then the other thing is with the bed. I, I've got a thing that I rigged up with that. I've got a 30-minute uh, timer. And um, a, a, a bed heater thing. And so what I do is at night when I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting tired, I go turn that thing on. And by the time I go to bed, it's probably shut off. But I get into bed and it is really warm. And uh, it feels just magnificent and awesome. Now, I, I think I could probably save some money there by instead of doing that, probably doing like a hot water bottle or something like that. But I got to tell you, it's pretty luxurious to get into a bed that's that warm. <laughs> wow. And, so uh, let's let's try to wrap up, though, with a little bit on how, if we do want to heat the house, right? There's there's a thing called a rocket mass heater you've done a lot of work with. And right. l- can we talk a little bit about how those work and, and kind of leave people with that today as another thing that they can look at? Because I'm, I'm about to build one inside a greenhouse, um, partially to prove it can be done and partially so that, like, stuff won't freeze, um, at night on the few nights that I need to actually provide some supplemental heat there. But these things are pretty cool, and you were the first person that I ever learned about them from. I knew what a rocket stove was, but I didn't know what a rocket mass heater was. So first of all, with a greenhouse, you know, putting a rocket mass heater into a greenhouse is probably the easiest way to put together a rocket mass heater. Um, on the flip side, with a greenhouse, I, I just want to say, uh, take a look at Mike Ayler's work in that space. Um uh, basically, he came up with a greenhouse design that's kind of a pit-style greenhouse. Uh, that's, I think, the most efficient way of, of structuring and designing a greenhouse. Uh, he was—he had this thing that was leaky as hell, and it—it um, it had uh, um, all kinds of holes where air can come and go and things like that. Yeah, he was able to raise tomatoes into December. Uh, in North Idaho, without any additional heat, he was also able to dig more than two feet into the ground without hitting this really white, hard stuff called uh, quartz. Though, uh, so <laughs> I, the whole underground thing is a great idea. Um, but where I live, and it's actually the one place where I can orient the damn thing the way that it actually is going to make it efficient. Um, basically, I brought in a dozer and pushed this area flat. And on one side, I have about two feet of earth to act as thermal uh, mass, and then a little bit on the other side. But I just can't go down any further because then you hear the sound that's like scrape, scrape. And I just believe that using, like, dynamite would be the only way. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it's not rocky. It's slab. You know, it's 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 the Washita Mountains, man. It's just the way it right. is. Right. Anyway, you were saying. I'm sorry. I just Okay. All right. Let's move back to the, to the uh, rocket mass heater stuff. So um, I guess in a nutshell, the key is is that most people who replace a conventional wood stove with a rocket mass heater 
uh, then heat their homes with five to ten times less wood. And I know that there's a bunch of people that really hate it when I say that. And so I guess the appropriate way to say it for them to cope is to say with 80 to 90 percent less wood because they say you say you can't have five times less or that would be a negative number or something. I see. But I, I know what I'm saying. I'm I know what you meant. No. <laughs> no. All right. So it's 80 to 90 percent less wood. Um, and uh, somebody like Ernie Wisner can probably get it to be even even better. They probably double that. You know, um, uh, but because he's built like 700 rocket mass heaters. Um, uh, anyway, the, the, I get it burns a different way. It does a lot of stuff in a different way. And and I also usually when I'm giving this presentation or when I mention it on a forum somewhere or something like that, usually there's some Buford who stands up and says, I bought me a, a new conventional wood stove. And it says right on the label, 75% efficient. And there's no way that you can get better than that. That's, that's as good as it possibly gets. And even if you could get better, there's no way that you're going to be able to squeeze hundreds and hundreds of percents out of 25%. It's just not mathematically possible. And I love that question. <laughs> Was that a question? <laughs> I think the question is, is, can you explain to me how I'm so stupid? <laughs> so the, the the key is, is that you think about, it, okay, there's all these people that make these conventional wood stoves, and um, and then that they have to go and send their stuff off to a lab to get rated to to um, on, on like how efficient is it? And then there used to be several labs that you could send it to, and of course the labs would compete with each other, and so of course each lab is going to say we're going to give you better numbers than the other labs. Um, and and so the the government allows a sixteen they allow sixteen percent to go up the chimney. So um, when they say seventy five percent, they're actually talking about seventy five percent of eighty four percent. So your seventy five percent efficient wood stove is actually sixty four percent efficient. Um, because you do need some heat to carry that smoke up out of the chimney. In fact, I believe if I remember correctly. That it requires, you know, a conventional wood stove. That the temperature of the smoke leaving the chimney has to be 300 degrees Fahrenheit or hotter, in order to carry the smoke out and away. Um, so now the next thing is, is like, you know, I'll bet that 100% of your listeners that are listening right now that have ever burned a fire in a conventional wood stove, I'll bet at some point in time. They turn the dampers down on their wood stove. They put a log in for the night and they turn the dampers down with the idea that that log, they want it to burn all night, a slow burn. So that way when they get up in the morning, it's not freezing cold in the house and, and then, um, they'll pick up the fire from there. And, and the funny thing is, is that that's not represented in the 75%. The 75%, I mean, they'll burn like 20 fires at the lab, maybe even 100 fires at the lab, trying to get the best possible number. And, and every time they do that, it's with the dampers wide open. And they're doing all kinds of stuff, all kinds of shenanigans to try and squeeze out a couple of extra percentage points. So that way they can report good numbers. But the thing is, is you damp that down, your efficiency went from 75%, but 
Plus, the other thing, at home, the best anybody probably ever gets with a stove that's rated at 75%, the best they probably ever get is like 69 to 70%. That's you know, be you the know best. what I'm hearing now? I'm hearing from the beginning of our talk today. No, that was just marketing. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, technically, they legitimately were able to get probably 75% according to the rule set that they have to be within. But when, when people burn it at night and they damp it down, they're probably getting um, 3% to 5% efficiency. Well, see, and here's another thing about that, right? 75% when, right? Because here's the thing. If you get 75% of the heat out of one big oak log really, really fast, then your house gets hotter than you want it to be. Right. True. So yeah. it's it's not just about how efficiently we take the heat and make it available, but do we make it available like taking a shot of whiskey or do we make it available like taking a shot of tequila and putting it into a margarita and enjoying it over an hour? Uh, those are two very or, you know, uh, 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 taking a uh, an herbal supplement or taking a time release capsule. Those are two different things. And to me, a rocket mass heater stretches the duration of the use So it's not just about raw BTUs. True. Yeah, and that's another aspect of it. We've seen, I mean, we have a huge thread out at permies.com where where we've gone over this. I mean, I think it's like five or six pages long, and we've got some people that are working in some of these laboratories participating in the threads and and speculating on how they believe, where where they believe the efficiency is coming from. And uh, one of the guys, uh, two of the people, they believe that that's the reason. That's the real reason right there as you take the ups and downs out and level it off. But um, I believe that it has – well, that's a factor. I, I believe it's dominantly about how much heat you shoot at the chimney because with a rocket mass heater, you have an exhaust. You don't have a chimney. You have an exhaust, and, and the temperature coming out of there is typically around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Correct. So, so it's like um, you're basically you've extracted far more heat from that fire and kept it inside your house. Um, so now, oh, I mean, the thing is, a lot of people. When I first heard about a rocket mass heater, I had a really hard time understanding how it could possibly be, because basically you have a hole that you look at, and a hole goes straight down, and and then you pile, and the hole's like six inches in diameter. And you take a bunch of stuff that looks like kindling and you put it in this hole and then you burn it at the bottom of the kindling, which I I think anybody who would hear this would think, then your house is going to fill up with smoke and you're all going to asphyxiate and die. Yeah, because fire goes up, not sideways, but, yeah. but not in this thing. It goes sideways. It really does. <laughs> I've got a whole video on YouTube dedicated to like a whole bunch of rocket mass heaters in action and like watch the sideways burn. And um, it is indeed rather bizarre. Uh, and, and so uh, it goes sideways. And then there is a chimney, but it's like it's like inside the rocket mass heater, and it's short and stubby. Instead of going out the roof, it's only like two or three feet tall. And, and it's actually super insulated. And what happens is, is that you're trying to make it so incredibly hot in there, you kind of get this... Um, burning vortex thing going on and uh, uh because of the burning vortex thing then the smoke gets reburned and it releases even more heat and it creates the suction that pulls all the air down through the wood feed to make it so that the fire burns sideways and no smoke comes out 
And it is also set up so you can push the exhaust wherever you want it, which, which what you want with a rocket mass heater is to burn it, is to push the exhaust through a thermal mass. So you get two kinds of heat. You get, you get your radiant heat coming off of, cause, cause the, the short chimney then usually has something over it, a bell that goes over it to redirect, um, the exhaust back down and into a duct. Uh, and so then that way you can, um, then, then collect it and push it around. So, um, the bell traditionally gives off a huge amount of radiant heat during the fire. And then, and then the rest of the heat is pushed down into the mass. And then the mass gives off radiant heat hours, even days after the fire has stopped burning. And if you just want that extra little boost, you can go, and usually the thermal mass is shaped into a bench. Um, about, about half the cases I've seen it, it's shaped into a bench and you can go sit on the bench and get that conductive heat, which is even more efficient, which will really warm you up. So, um, this, this is a contraption that's very, very different from a conventional wood stove or a fireplace or anything we're used to looking at. This is, it's, it's, and it, and it, it, it so it's like all your thoughts, all the questions that come up about it are all based upon what we already know about wood heat. Correct. And they, they don't work. Correct. Now, I, mean, I think some of the things you're saying there, too, to talk about efficiency is, okay, if I burn, let's say I take a, a, a oak log and I burn that in a conventional wood stove, or I take the same oak log and break it up in little pieces and burn the exact same amount of material in the rocket mass heater. It's not just about how much heat goes away, the escape heat. It's also about how much heat is created because of the more efficient burn. In other words, I'm not just more efficient in the heat that I retain, I'm more efficient in the heat that I produce. And and that's why the, these these numbers on a wood stove versus numbers on a rocket mass heater, it's an apples and oranges comparison. They, so the guy that's all mad, the Yosemite Sam character you so eloquently created, it, is not really living in the same world because the technology is completely different. Well, I think with a conventional wood stove, most people are burning those. I mean, they're, they're, they, they are told 75%, but it's really 64%. Sure. And, and then, um, and when they're burning it, they're burning it, um, usually anywhere from 3% to 60%. Whereas the rocket mass heater, um, I think it's going to burn, um, 90%, almost every burn. You can't, you can't configure it to burn poorly. But then it, it, uh, um, yeah, if you do a really bad job, it won't work, right? It's it's the kind of an on or off thing. If the if the fire comes up and you die, you did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if I, I think goes sideways and you don't die, you're going to get most of the efficiency that was promised to you. It's a it's a foolproof system. You either die or you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I I think um, in my experience, when you try and if you try if you start the fire poorly. And it starts to smoke because it's burning up because there's no heat in the heat riser uh, to get the, um, the 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 air moving through because it's a passive system. There's no fan. Correct. And and so if you do it wrong, eventually that heat riser still heats up and corrects it. Um, but I have seen a couple of times on a few different burns where it's like um, the sticks are placed in such a way that something's wrong and not working right, and it does start to smoke back. Um, but it's pretty rare. 
And even if it does, it's like, it's, you're still, that's the other thing too is, is that when you put, when you fill a, a conventional wood stove up with wood to have a fire, I mean, you've got probably 10 or 15 times more wood right there than you ever put into a rocket mass heater. I mean, the amount of, I mean, it's twigs. You're putting twigs into a rocket mass heater. Which makes availability much different as well. So I can take normally the stuff that's just being carted away to a landfill and turn it into heat rather than using wood that actually would have been better milled into something useful um, and using that as firewood. So I think there's there's a case there. I also would say we're back to efficiency. If I look at my burn chamber when it's done burning in a rocket mass heater, I have like this really fine fly ash and not much else. If I look at, you know, then... Anybody that's run a stove knows there's a lot of refuse left that you have to take out. So that's all material that wasn't burned. Right, 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 right. I, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, is that you're just, you're just using a lot less wood, like an incredibly different. And, oh, here's not, so you were mentioning rocket stoves before. I, I don't know if you've ever uh, heard the story of Ianto Evans in Africa and how he came up with that. No, and I haven't. So, so Yanto is like fresh out of school feeling like he's going to save the world. So he goes to Africa and he notices that these people, when they cook their food, they just have a fire inside their house and they're not believers of a chimney. So basically the house just fills up with smoke and it pours out the front door and everybody's got these eye problems and lung problems and stuff like that. <laughs> so he's, he's like going to be a super, Yanto's all like, I'm going to save these people. So he brings up all of these, um, solar ovens and shows them how to use them and he's and then he walks away and I saved this community and then he comes back like three months later and the solar ovens are nowhere to be found but everybody's got a lot of really shiny jewelry so it turns out to be not a cultural fit it didn't work out the, they, they didn't they didn't take to the the solar ovens they're gonna keep burning these 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 fires in their house. So um, he came up with the rocket stove where what would happen was is that they could cook their food using 10 to 20 times less wood. And uh, on top of that, since it reburned the smoke, then it, then for the amount of wood, it was cutting the amount of smoke that ended up in the room by another factor of five. So there's virtually zero smoke in the house at all. But even more importantly, they're cooking their food, continuing with wood, which is what they've always done. Um, only there's like 10 times less of it. So then what happened is, is that he built a few of them and then, um, and of course it's like, it's, it's a, a woman's world kind of a thing. The women do the cooking and the women fetch the wood. And, and so it's like the woman next door now fetches 10 times less wood and has 10 times less work to do. So then the woman says to her, uh, her husband, you're going to get me one of those. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Makes me think of my all-time favorite line for my all-time least favorite movie I was ever forced to watch. Okay. One of those things you do for your wife or, your, you know, if you're not married yet, your girlfriend. <laughs> I was forced to watch a movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I can't tell you anything about the movie except this one line. The old lady says in this movie at one point, the man may be the head of the household, but the woman is the neck and the neck can turn the head any way she wants the head to go. Intelligent <laughs> thing in that entire movie. <laughs> so, uh, a different so, era. If you uh, ever, first, like everybody ever wants to try to make you watch that, like a, a lady friend or something, you can say, "Listen, 
In 30 seconds, I'll give you the only thing useful out of the whole thing, and we'll just skip it. <laughs> so uh, um, then Yanto, uh, in world-saving mode, accomplishing awesome things, comes back to the United States. And, um, and of course, you know, war, the, the war thing. And, and, of course, it all comes back to energy, uh, which comes back to heating our homes. Um, and, and basically he, he thinks, well, if I could heat everybody's home for free, then that would cut half of the electrical usage. You know, anyways, it'll save so much energy that we won't need to go to war anymore. So rather than going down and, and carrying a picket sign and saying angry things to people, then, uh, he actually did something that will, that, that is currently changing the world. It's, it's a, it's in making things better for all of us. And uh, so he converted his rocket stove technology to this rocket mass heater, and and this is his gift to us. And and by gift, I truly mean that. The uh, if you look at his book, the the rocket mass heater book, you'll find that the words in the book are not copyrighted. They are in the public domain. That's Ianto Evans's gift to us. The images are copyrighted. But, um, you know, the key is, is that this information is indeed freely available. That's and awesome. what, it, I mean, basically this guy is, is probably ending 80% of our excuses to go to war. Um, and, you know, and of course the primary, I think the primary reason we go to war is so somebody can get rich, but, you know, at least they don't have this excuse about, oh, it's. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on that. But, I mean, I'm also with you on the second part of what you just said, because we killed a lot of people before anybody knew what oil was. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, it, when we, if we don't need oil anymore, we'll find something else to, to kill people for. That's, that's the military industrial complex. That's what, you know, Eisenhower warned us about in his farewell address. And, of course, that's been lost to history, unfortunately, and fell on deaf ears. Right. I, you know, but I do think that we're going to war less and less often. I, I really think that if you want to solve a war in the Middle East, um, you know, how those people kind of hate each other's guts all the time and stuff like that. I, I think what you need to do is you need to give these people 500 channel, channels of television each. I think they got lots of television. <laughs> oh, I said like, we took Red Book and Cosmopolitan and like, I, these remote areas where the women are like held down and held back and, you know, they, they don't, they don't have a say in society and translated them into Arabic and just dropped the Red Book and Cosmopolitan in there. If those women knew uh, how bad they were getting hosed over, they would, they would take over. They would just snap out. <laughs> I, I actually, well, yeah, I, I have a lot of uh, very crude stuff to say in that space, but I probably, well, your show's already explicit. Maybe I should Yeah, let's not go too far down into the, uh, <laughs> Well, I, I, I think, okay, let's see if I can find a way to kind of, uh, euphemize this a little bit. I, I think that, uh, um, everything in the world will be fixed by an art, by a single article in like Cosmo. And, uh, the article would have to say something like this, something like, um, uh, women have, uh, studies at this university, uh, this Ivy League university have shown that, um, uh, women have, uh, a far better uh, sexual experience when it's uh, with a man of integrity, um, and and so then basically that'll become the hot new thing that every that the women want. They don't want the bad boys anymore. Ooh. They uh, you know, and it's all about integrity. In fact, the higher the level of integrity, the better the experience. Then it seems to me like suddenly integrity is going to be the thing that is the most valuable thing, and therefore all these people that are doing these wicked things will 
change their minds about <laughs> having that policy. Suddenly they're the ugly guy and uh, the hot guys are the ones that have the integrity. I, I think that that's how to change the world. <laughs> Sorry. It's crazy. That's okay, that's okay man. It's crazy. Uh, but you, you started down crazy, the path. It also makes you go, hmm, I wonder if something's there. Anyway, man, this has been great. So you actually have a podcast of your own. We've mentioned several times, but you have some episodes on Rocket Mass Heaters, like a two-hour tear-it-apart, rip-it-down, break-it-apart, that type of thing. So if you'll, when we get wrapped up here, if you'll send me an email, um, I'll make sure those are in the, in the show notes, and I'll make sure these the ones you mentioned with Jeff Lawton, uh, the one that's already up and the one you're going to be putting up, I'll backfill into the notes for you. Okay. And uh, let's, you know, kind of let everybody know, like, that hasn't had the Paul Wheaton experience before, know all the websites and places they can get cool stuff from you and talk to you and be on your forum and get your podcast, where do they need to go online? Right. Uh, and so it's like um, my obnoxious articles and all my podcasts are out at richsoil.com. Um, and and permies.com I've split off, and I'm trying to, like, maintain a community there, so I'm trying to be less ranty and more nurture community to go in a certain direction there. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, – but from e- either of those sites, you can find my YouTube channel where I've got gobs of videos. And and the one Rocket Mass Heater video or a podcast you were talking about, that's based on uh, a bunch of projects I did about a portable Rocket Mass Heater and and so I'm talking to the uh, who I believe is is today's leading innovator in rocket mass heaters, and that'd be Ernie Wisner. And so I have a two and a half hour long podcast with Ernie and Erica Wisner, uh, going over um, all kinds of details about designs and um, why and how can we justify this and and um, uh, you know design variations, the the greenhouse stuff, uh, all these kinds of things. So. Does that answer your question? Absolutely, and we'll make sure that we provide links to all of those things, as always, in the show notes. Paul, all I can say is it's always a flippant experience to have you on the air, man. Thanks for joining me today. Well, well thanks for uh, having me on before and building my empire. It's awesome. <laughs> the Wheaton Empire, awesome. It, it makes me think, of course, there's that Will Wheaton guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, the Star right. Trek connotations when I say Wheaton Empire, so I better say the Paul Wheaton Empire. Uh, th- there you go. And, and actually, uh, Will Wheaton and I have exchanged email, and uh, uh, we are kin, uh, but very distant kin. Man, you know everybody famous. Jeff Watt and Will Wheaton. Man, I'm envious. <laughs> And one more thing we should cover, Paul, before we let everybody go today is that, you know what, they can meet you, and they can meet me, and they can eat a, even meet a mutual hero of ours named Sepp Holzer. You want to tell, <laughs> tell folks about that? Oh, right, right, right. So what is it? It's like uh, somewhere around the beginning of May, like May 3rd or something like that. Um, uh, but the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holzer is is coming to the United States and um and I'm lucky because it's it's in Montana where I live uh so I don't have to go so far but I've uh, I've been uh trying to uh help a little bit with getting things set up uh I think I I just recently the gal that's like you know coordinating all this she just got back from Sepp's place she like flew to Europe and she she teaches all over the world already, but but she was already over in Austria, so she stopped by and visited with Sepp for a couple of days, and uh, so two things have changed to the whole event. Uh, one is is that instead of seven days, there's eleven days of of Sepp, 
Um, and I think it has to do with how much demand there was. And also, I think the format has changed a little bit because, you know, SEP has a certain way of doing things. So instead of having, like, stuff on a particular day, like pond building on a day, it's like, no, you don't, you don't get to know what day he's talking about pond building because, I don't know, when, I've, I've, I've been to his stuff before and it's, it's like he just stands up and talks about whatever the hell he wants to talk about. So it's kind of hard to get him to focus on a, on a topic or to say in advance, this is what you're going to talk about. Um, so it's, but anyway, the thing is, I think most people that are enamored with Sepp Holzer are going to be like, that's totally cool. 11 days and Sepp just talks about whatever the hell he wants to talk about. That's great. The, the second bit of information that I got was confirmation of something I've heard not only from Sepp himself, but I've heard from several other people. And this is something that's not documented anywhere and he doesn't really talk about it, but that's his water. And, and it's like, you know, when I, I talk to people all the time about like uh, what are income models for a farm and things like that. And, and of course, Sepp is the master in that space. I mean, a you know, hundred acres and he's probably pulling down more than half a million a year. Uh, just from his farm activities, not including his consulting activities off farm. And, um, <clears throat> but one of the things that goes on is that people believe that if you go to, it's, in fact, this woman described it as the fountain of youth. That, that there's a quality to the water there. And I think that's something that, you know, I haven't put a lot of thought into. I've always thought water is water is water is water. And, um, uh, but I've heard it from so many people now. I'm very, curious and and so it's it's like you go you drink the water and there's amazing things so so a lot of the stuff he's going to be talking about is about ponds and about water quality and he's going to talk about his water and um but i mean like that's just that's just frosting on the cake really but i just i was just really uh i don't know glad to hear about this aspect and it, it, it brings up things about Stuff I never, I never even thought of. And, and you know, that's another thing too, is like, you know, according to my Wheaton Eco Scale, and Sepp Holzer is at the very top of the scale, then, um, anything that somebody a few levels ahead does seems crazy. And I think a lot of Sepp's stuff seems crazy until you get the full story. And, and, uh, so now we're gonna have 11 days of him telling the full story. And so this is like, very advanced permaculture. This is like how, I mean, basically by having the information in Sepp's head in your own head, it makes, it, it, it makes your life easier. It makes his insanity look like it's sane too, because then you'll actually understand it. Right? That's I mean, true. You know, and then here's the cool part. You get to hang out with Sepp Holzer and Paul Wheaton and, <laughs> and, and me. So the, the three of us will be there. So now the world might start spinning backwards for a half a second or something due to the, the, the co-location of insanity in one place. But it should be an absolute blast and an amazing learning experience. And, folks, this is going to be pl- taking place in Dayton, Montana. Apparently, I need to update my public appearance page because I did not know about the date changes and making this thing longer. I'm certainly not complaining, man. More time with Sepp is awesome. Um, so I'll make sure there's a link to that uh, event and all the other stuff Paul and I talked about today in the show notes. And we have that guy that's like said that he would put you and me up, so we're going to be bunkies. Oh, did he talk to you too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You awesome. and I would be staying in the same place. He's got we, like, he's got a triplex or something like that. It's going to be something. awesome. Yeah, so we're going to be bunkies. That's going to be cool. All right, man. But uh, uh, I I think that the big thing is is that by having this information in your head 
that when you go to do your permaculture stuff, that it will be, it'll all make more sense. You will get it done faster because you're using your brain. And, and the big thing is, is I talk to all these permaculture people and they're talking about their permaculture strategies and the things that they're trying to do. And as I hear it, I think that sounds like a lot of work. That's not what SEP would do, you know, and so much of what SEP does is like to set things up in such a way that he doesn't do any work anymore. And so it's like, it's just all you ever do is harvest. And, 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 oh, and I know that you, Jack, have talked at great length about food preservation. Correct. And before, there was an entire day of SEP talking about nothing but food preservation. He does mountains of this stuff. And he has some techniques that were extremely different. And I should have, I should have like written it down or recorded it or something like that. But I, I can't remember all the details, but he has like all these stories that he tells of all these different things that he's done. Anyway, it's very advanced. I, if nothing else, there's, there's the whole thing about the SEP bone sauce. Are you familiar with that one? No, I'm not. This is the one where, like, you know, you go out and you plant trees and you're building a big cage around the tree in order to keep the deer from eating it. Oh, and I think I do know where you're going with this. He's got this gunk that he makes, and then you put a little dab on a tree. It lasts 10 years, and nothing will touch it. The deer are just like, no, I'm not eating that cambium. You put goats in there. You put pigs in there. You put whatever you want in there. They're not going to touch you. That's just awesome. Well, folks... Uh, if you needed a reason to go to Dayton, Montana, now you got one. And with that, we will finally wrap up today. This has been Jack Spierko today along with the illustrious Paul Wheaton, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, and we 